We're going to start a, a, a three-week series in the book of Habakkuk. Um, one, of, one of the challenges, well, what, really one of the challenges reading the Bible anywhere is um, we're dealing with people who lived thousands of years ago in um, a radically different culture than ours, different times, um, different traditions. Um, when you consider that three-fourths of our Bible deals with uh, Israel who had favored, favored nation status, the vast majority of them were not true believers. Um, you know, how, how do we... It re- really, it's not just how do we interpret these things, but how do we apply these things? Um, I remember when I was in seminary, Haddon Robinson... Uh, he had, a, he had written a paper and he did a talk on, it was called Application, Heresy of the Orthodox. Uh, and he was saying that interpretation in most cases is pretty straightforward when you follow the, the standard uh, interpretive rules uh, for really approaching any, any type of literature, but especially the Bible. He said, with, with some, obviously some exceptions, it's fairly straightforward. He said application is, is, another, is another issue in that while one may... Um, interpret the Bible correctly. Uh, when it comes to application, then they just go all over the place. <laughs> it's like there, are, like there are no restraints whatsoever on application. <laughs> um, so that's the challenge, um, especially again when it comes to the Old Testament. Uh, on the one hand, uh, we can approach it. Some people approach the Old Testament as it's basically obsolete. Um, the Old Testament is divine history. We read it. Gee, wasn't God great back then? Um, but that's about it. Others read the Old Testament and they, they, they say that it's only in, good insofar as it, it is, teaches us about Jesus. So it's, it's very, uh, in, in, can I say this, inappropriately Christocentric. In other words, they, they, they want to look for Jesus behind every bush. Um, and certainly, I guess, in one sense, that would be true. Um, but when we come to the book of Habakkuk, it's going to be difficult for us to apply it. Because, again, we live in a different age. Now, oftentimes people say, well, well one of the reasons is it's hard to interpret the Old Testament is Israel was a, was a theocracy, you know, that God was. And um, I, I respond by saying every form of government is a theocracy. Uh, it just determines which theos you follow. Right now, the United States is self, the God of self. Uh, so, uh, having said that, when we come to the book of Habakkuk, the, the challenge for us is going to be, what in the world does this have to do with me? Living in the 21st century, Dealing with the things I'm dealing with, not just in my personal life, not just in the life of my family, but obviously, you know, dealing with all that's going on. Well, that's going to be uh, my my goal, my task is to, to to do that. We don't want it to be merely divine history, but on the other hand, we don't want to be this equals that either. Uh, we, we we can't we can't approach the scripture allegorically and saying that uh, this represents this and this represents that and. And it preaches really good, and yet uh, that is not how we, how we are to handle Scripture. Um, 
so as we approach this, we're going to take uh, the 1 Corinthians 10-11 approach. These things were written, these things happened to them as examples for our instruction. So there is things that we can learn, there's things that we have to learn, and we can learn uh, for our instruction. And I think that when we get into the book of Habakkuk, you'll see how contemporary it really is in, in many, many ways. But we start not in the book of Habakkuk, we start in the book of Second Chronicles. Because as, uh, as you should do in, in most cases, uh, you should give a background in, uh, of, of the book. And I've always said, if you're going to study one of the prophets, what you really need to do is, is to look historically what was going on historically when that prophet wrote. Uh, and so that's what we want to do. Is we, want to, we want to examine and see the world in which Habakkuk lived, the world in which Habakkuk wrote his prophecy. And it really begins in Second Chronicles 34. It begins with a, with a good king, Josiah, one of the few good kings. The northern kingdom had no good. They had 20 kings. None of them were good. They were all evil. The southern kingdom, Judah, they, it, it, there's arguments about who, what constitutes good. Two, for sure. They had two very, very good kings. Josiah was one of them. Uh, chapter, second Chronicles chapter 34. Josiah was eight years old. When he became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, he did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, which he would be how old? 16. He was a 16-year-old. Think of this now. 16 years old. He began to seek the God of his ancestor David, and in the twelfth year he began to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherah poles, the carved images, and the cast images. Then in his presence the altars of the Baals were torn down, and he chopped down the shrines that were above them. He shattered the Asherah poles, the carved images, and the cast images, crushed them to dust, and scattered them over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. And this was... Remarkable, because for a long, long time, idolatry was rampant, not obviously in Israel, but also in Judah. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, so he he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. He did the same in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali and all the surrounding mountain shrines, and, and on their surrounding mountain shrines. He tore down the altars, and he smashed the Asherah poles, And the carved images to powder. He chopped down all the shrines throughout the land of Israel and returned to Jerusalem. What would you call, how would you characterize this era? Josiah, how would you characterize this? Renewal, Renewal, reform. And, And what do you think came with this kind of spiritual renewal and reform? Probably a great, we know a great deal of prosperity. In the 18th year of his reign, in order to cleanse the land and the temple, Josiah sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, along with Messiah, the governor of the city, and the court historian Joaz, son of Joaz, to repair the temple. Which tells you what? It had fallen into disrepair and unuse. So they went to the high priest Hilkiah, and he gave them the silver brought into God's temple, and the Levites... And the doorkeepers collected it from Manasseh, Ephraim, from all the tribes. They gave it to those doing the work, those who oversaw the Lord's temple. They gave it to the workmen who were working in the Lord's temple to repair and restore the temple. This, this was symbolic of restoration and repairing of their culture. The, their, their very, the very nature and heart of their culture had been so corrupted. 
that needed repair and renewal. Go on to verse 14. When they brought out the silver that had been deposited in the Lord's temple, the priest Hilkiah found the book of the law written by the hand of Moses. I, I picture this guy. It reminded me kind of, Dan, when you were talking about, you know, that scroll that you that uh, was in Morocco. You've got in Morocco. They went into some back room. And you said there wasn't there like old. Yeah, just throwing all these books, dust. You know, I imagine Hilkiah, you know, they're, 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 he's cleaning out a back room. He's sweeping and he finds this, this scroll. He goes, you know, blows the dust off it. And lo and behold, it's what? It's the Torah. It's the law. Shaphan, verse 16, took the books of the king and reported, Your servants are doing all that was placed in your hands. They have emptied out the silver. They've done all these things. Then the court secretary, Shaphan, told the king, And priest Hilkiah gave me a book. He had... He didn't even know what it was. That's how far they'd come. And Shaphan read it, read from it in the presence of the king. Probably the first time he had ever read it and heard it. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes and he commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Abdon, the court secretary, the king's servant, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for those remaining in, in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that was found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is poured out on us because our ancestors have not kept the word of the Lord in order to do everything written in the book. They had strayed from the commands and from the, the requirements of the word of God. Does that sound like any other country? Contemporary country? So Hilkiah knows the king had designated went to the prophet. Prophet is Hilda, the wife of Shalom, son of Toka, son of... I feel like I'm reading Lord of the Rings here sometimes. <laughs> they spoke with her about this. Um, look at verse 27. He, she said, to, to, this is to Josiah, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants. And because you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard this is the Lord's declaration. I will indeed gather you to your fathers and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see the disaster that I'm bringing on this place and its inhabitants. They they affirm the covenant uh, together. Um, They observe Passover that they had had never uh, observed uh, chapter 35, verse 16. So all the service of the Lord was established that day for observing the Passover, for offering of burnt offerings, according to the command of King Josiah. Massive cultural restoration and renewal, religious reform under King Josiah for 31 years. And then we come to verse 20. And, and I like how the Christian Standard Bible, Bible introduces verse 20. After all this, after all this that Josiah had prepared for the temple, King Necho of Egypt marched up to fight at Carchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to confront him. But Necho sent messengers to him, saying, What is this issue between you and me, king of Judah? I have not come against you today, but I am fighting another dynasty. God told me to hurry. Stop opposing God who is with me. Don't make him destroy you. And these faithful words in verse 23. But Josiah did not turn away from him. Instead, in order to fight with him, he disguised himself 
He did not listen to Nico's words from the mouth of God, but went into the valley of Megiddo to fight. And the, archer, the archer shot King Josiah, and he died. It, um, this would have been, most historians believe, uh, 609 B.C. Imagine what could have happened. Imagine what, what he still could have done as king. Had he not made this fatal, literally, fatal mistake. Nico is the king of Egypt. This would be Nico II. He's heading north to Carchemish. Uh, they had a treaty with Assyria. And uh, the, the Neo-Babylonian Empire had now begun to, to invade Assyria. And they called for help. They called for their, their allies. And, and Egypt, Nico and Egypt, are, they're heading north. They have to go through Canaan. And, and Josiah comes out and, and says, let's go. You know, let's go. And, and he says, Nico says, well, I got no beef with you. I'm not here to invade your land. I'm just passing through. I'm going up north. Don't disobey God. Even from the mouth of a pharaoh, God said to Josiah, leave this alone. Let him go. But he didn't. Why? We don't know. So Nico goes north to Carchemish and uh, to help the Assyrians, and they get waxed. And Nico um, heads back to Egypt. By the way, after he after Nico defeated Josiah and his troops, uh, Israel came under the, the authority of Egypt uh, for approximately four years. Um, a short period of time later, because they still had to get up to Carchemish, which is north northern part of Syria. They get they get defeated, and Nico is on his way back to Jerusalem, or, or on his way back to Egypt. And in the meantime, he had placed on the throne a, a king by the name of Jehoiakim. Um, let's see here, that would be verse 5, 36-5. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And listen to this, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked him and bound him in bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. And also Nebuchadnezzar took some of the articles of the Lord's temple to Babylon and put them in his temple in Babylon. So Nico goes back to Egypt. And at this time, now Israel comes under the power of the Babylonians. And this would have been in the first deportation. Remember, there was a series of three deportations. This would have been the first deportation. Uh, they weren't destroyed at this point. They were now vassals of Babylon. And so uh, some vassal kings were appointed by Babylon. The first one was the son of Jehoiakim, and that is Jehoiakim. He was 18 years old, verse 9, when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. In the spring, Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon with the valuable articles of the Lord's temple. He made Jehoiakim's brother Zedekiah king over Judah because Jehoiakim had, in fact, tried to rebel against him. So Zedekiah becomes king in 588, approximately. Verse 13, he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar said, I've had enough of these pesky Israelites. And he became obstinate, hardened his heart against returning to the Lord, the God of Israel. And in 586, we all know what happened. This would be the final, uh, the final solution. And that was the total eradication of Jerusalem and Israel. Turn now to the book of Habakkuk. The question is, 
when did Habakkuk write? When did he live? Did he live under this, that in, during this time of, of massive cultural reform and renewal and restoration? Or in fact, did he live in a time of cultural corruption, a cultural decay, religious apostasy? Um, let's look now at Habakkuk chapter 1 and we'll answer that question. And tell me if you think it sounds like he, he, he lived and prophesied during the reign of Josiah or during Jehoiakim or Jehoiakin or even probably not Zedekiah. There probably wouldn't have been time for his prophecy to be distributed and read that. But, but let's read it. The pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. We know that he prophesied before the Babylonian invasion because we're going to read in the, in the next section that that's in fact what he prophesies. That well, God tells him that. My guess is he, he, he came after Josiah and was during the reigns of either Je- Jehoiakim. And I, I think it was probably Jehoiakim because Jehoiakim was only three months. During a time where they had just come out of a time of, of great... Uh, restoration, renewal, and now in such a short period of time, ten years or less. This is the, look at the description of the of the world he lived in: violence, injustice, wrongdoing, oppression, strife, conflict. If I were to title these four verses, I think Habakkuk saying, "God, what in the world are you doing?" Does, in fact, Habakkuk really question the goodness of God? Is that what he's doing? How long must I call for help? You don't listen. A crowd about violence you don't save. I don't think he's really questioning the goodness of God. I think what he's questioning is, God, why aren't you doing something about it? He's not, he's not questioning why God allows it to happen in the sense of, uh, its existence, but he's saying, why don't you intervene? He says, how long do I have to cry out to you and you don't do anything? I call this first section Habakkuk's angst. Do you know what angst is? What's angst? It's a feeling of dread, a, a, a feeling, an anxiousness, a feeling of anxiety. If, if I were, if I were to characterize probably the, the spirit of our age, certainly of true believers and true churches, is, is angst. In what we're facing, that, that we've never really, to this, to this extent, uh, to this degree, we've never really faced the kinds of things we're facing as a country. And it's not a foreign enemy, really. It's an ideology. It's a worldview. And, and, and I have to wrestle with this, this emotion of angst, dread, and anxiety. And this is, what, this is what Habakkuk was experiencing. Uh, again, when you, when you when you look at these words, violence, injustice, in fact, he says, by the way, this injustice is not social justice. 
Because the text explains to us what kind of injustice he's talking about. Look at verse 4. The injustice he's talking about is when the law is ineffective. And justice never emerges. What, what would be the law that he's referring to? The law of God. Because as we've learned on Wednesday nights, God didn't have a separate law for the nations, natural law for the nations, and then a spiritual law for his people. No, God has one law that everyone is accountable to. Every human government is accountable to it. Every human institution is accountable to it. That God doesn't say, well, you know, you guys can have your own law. And what has that gotten us, by the way? Abortion? The alphabet people? But he, he, he describes it. He says, the, the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. What does he mean, the wicked restrict the righteous? This is what he's talking about, about in terms of, of injustice. Well, keep your marker here. Turn to Isaiah chapter 10. I think Isaiah gives a great description I think of what Habakkuk faced and what Habakkuk is dealing with. And tell me if this doesn't sound contemporary. Now, I'm not saying the United States is equal to, but we, we see these, what I call echoes um, throughout history of, of these things that, 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 that come and go. Isaiah 10, verse 1, Woe to those enacting Crooked statutes. Can, can I change that to mandates? And writing oppressive laws. Like a 25 mile per hour speed limit? Really? No, I'm just teasing about that. <laughs> to keep the poor from getting a fair trial and to deprive the needy among my people of justice so that widows can be their spoils. That's the kind of injustice he was referring to. Corrupt statutes, oppressive rules, a corrupt legal system. And Habakkuk has experienced a great deal of dread and angst over why God is letting it happen and he does nothing about it. How long must I call for help and you don't listen? And cry out to you about all that's going on in our world. Do you, do you not think, for those who believe that, the word, that the, God has to come again so the, the United States is going down the crapper. Listen, believers in North Vietnam have been living in ten times worse for ten times longer than we have. If that was the rule for when God, when Jesus is going to come again, he would have come again a long time ago and saved those precious people from the awful things that they've been experiencing. How long? Why do you force me to view and to watch and experience injustice? God, what in the world are you doing? Doing. Habakkuk's. It's easy for you to say. Habakkuk's angst. Beginning in verse 5, we have God's answer. And this is so unique in terms of the prophets. That, 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 that 
typically the, the prophets would, would hear from God and then they would confront God's people and say, Thus saith the Lord! And preach. See, this is Jeremiah with Ezekiel, with Isaiah. But this prophecy is a, is a private conversation between Habakkuk and his God. And God says to him, look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded. He's saying, Habakkuk, look around you. Look at, look at the Babylonians. They're, they're a rising power. And they have, just defeated, they have just defeated that mighty empire, Assyria, that at one time was considered to be unbeatable. I want you to look at what's going on in the world around you, Habakkuk. Because I am doing something. So when Habakkuk said, God, what in the world are you doing? He said, oh, oh, oh I'm doing something in your days. But Habakkuk, you're not going to believe it. When you hear about it, you're not, you're not going to believe what I'm going to do. He says, look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. We call this a law unto themselves. They do as one person near and dear to my heart says, I do what I want. They, they, they were to, they, they, there was They recognized no higher authority than themselves. Does that sound contemporary? Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles swooping to devour. By the way, God is not telling Habakkuk anything that he doesn't already know and has heard about the Babylonians. But he's reminding him. They fly like eagles, swooping to devour. They come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings. The rulers are joked to them. They laugh at every fortress. They build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. I see your description. Really three things, I guess. Uh, that is... This was a, a nation, this was a, a, an, exter- let, let's talk, an external force that produced great fear, that took advantage of fear-mongering. Now, in, in the case of the Babylonians, it was rightfully deserved. When they were known for splitting Women's stomachs open, pregnant women's stomachs open, and exposing and killing their babies. It's hard, it's hard to hear, isn't it? We don't have empires like that anymore. Well, I take that back. I guess we do. It's called the United States. Right? But the, 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 to, to see what was going on in the world and for, for Habakkuk to look north and see what was going on in the north, um, well, it, it, it produced a great deal of fear. The, the, this, the Babylonians played on producing a great deal of fear in the lives of those that they were coming against. Number two, I want you to notice their resolution. Uh, again, look at um, 
Verse 9, all of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They are determined. They are resolute. There's no way they're going to stop. There's no way they're going to quit. There's not going to change their minds. There's no way that you can reason with them and sit down at a table and negotiate with them. They are resolved to defeat them. And then their arrogance. They mock kings. And rulers are joked to them. They laugh at every fortress. They build siege ramps to capture it. They sweep by like the wind and pass through the guilt. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. Their arrogance. So what? I mean, we, we, we have the advantage of what well, this took place in, uh, let's say, 605 or, or so. 600, almost 3,000 years of history. We kind of know what transpired after it. They didn't. They didn't. All God told Habakkuk was what? Habakkuk, you think it's bad now. I'm bringing a nation, this impetuous nation. Um, as we read, we'll read in verse 12 to execute judgment and to punish. What do we do with this? <laughs> in 21st century America, what do we do with this? How do we apply this? Again, the heresy of the Orthodox. Do we say, well, Babylon equals this, and Israel equals this? And, well, well let, me, let me offer uh, maybe a, a mediating position from this equals that and merely divine history. Again, Israel uh, in the Old Testament had what was called what I call favored nation status. They, they, they were God's people from a, from a national standpoint. They were not God's people from a redemptive standpoint. The vast majority of Jews were not saved. We need to, we need to, we need to get that. They were not saved. They were God's people from a national standpoint, but they were not God's people from a redemptive standpoint. They have, had not been saved. And they have... Several hundred years proving they weren't saved. So, do we say, well, you know, America's a Christian nation, and we're, we're not all saved, so therefore America equals Israel? I don't think we can do that. Here's what I think we can do. I think we can say, okay, take a step back, I guess on the ladder of abstraction, and say, what... What relationship did Babylon have to Israel at that time? They, they were a force, they were an external force that was bent on conquest and domination. I mean, that was their ultimate goal. Was to defeat and to dominate. And when you look at the the history of the church, when you look at the history of God's people, continually the church has faced external forces that seek to defeat 
and dominate, that, that have been bent on conquest. Starting with Babylon. Um, then we have, of course, the, the Medes and the Persians. We have the Greeks and we have the Romans. Now, all of these in, in, in their time would be distinct nation states that were bent on conquest and domination and even a, a form of destruction. So we can say that, that, that God's people have, have continually faced these forces that have come against us that, that are bent on domination in defeating us. And in this case, it was by God's own hand. So what does that tell us? It tells us that, guys, throughout scriptures, God often, if not almost always, used an external force upon his people to do his work. Quickly, if you would, again, turn back to Isaiah 10. Beginning in verse 5. Now, Isaiah is prophesying to the northern kingdom, which would have been Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. Look at verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my wrath. I will send him against a godless nation. Whose I, God, whose him, Assyria, Who's the godless nation? Israel. I will command him to go against a people destined for my rage, to take spoils, to plunder, to trample them down like clay in the streets. God is saying, I'm sending Assyria as a rod of my anger, as an instrument of my anger to judge Israel. But then, well, verse 7, this is not what he intends. This is not what he plans. No, Assyria's not going, I'm doing just what God wants me to do. That, that, what was in their heart? Their heart, their intent was to destroy and to cut off many nations. And, and, and again, the, the, the boasting and the, and the arrogance. Look at verse 12. And when the Lord finishes all his work against Mount Zion, Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for his arrogant acts. And for the proud look in his eyes. I'm going to send Assyria to do my business. And after he does, I'm going to judge him for doing it. And in doing that, God is not unjust or, or, or evil. You say, well, that's awfully convenient. Yeah, it is, but that's how God has revealed himself. We either submit to that or we make a God in our own image. I will use Assyria to fulfill my purposes... I'm not going to coerce them because destruction and conquest is in their heart. That's their intent. But after they do my bidding, after they do my work, I'm going to judge them. So God frequently used other nations. We see this 70 AD. Who did God use to destroy Israel? Rome. How could God have done it? You know, I mean... 
Turn to Amos chapter 4. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Amos chapter 4. So, so oftentimes God uses other nations for his purposes to bring punishment, to, ju- to bring judgment. But look at Amos chapter 4. Look what else God often uses. Amos is prophesying during a time of great social and spiritual corruption. Uh, Talk about uh, politically incorrect. He says, verse 1, Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan, who are on the hills of Samaria, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. See, this is why I don't have to go get my wife a Coke. It's biblical. Because I just need to say, you cow of Bashan. <laughs> Try that one, guys. Come to Bethel, verse 4. Come to Bethel and rebel. Rebel more at Gilgal. Bring your sacrifice. He, he's, he's being obviously facetious. Offer love and bread as a thank offering. Plowly vote. I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in all your cities, verse 6, a shortage of food in all your communities, yet you did not return to me. Verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. I sent rain on one city, but not rain on, no rain on another. One field received rain while the field was with no rain withered. Two or three cities staggered to another city to drink water, but you were not satisfied, yet you did not return to me. I struck you with blight and mildew and the locust devoured your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, yet you did not return to me. Verse 10, I sent plagues like those of Egypt. I killed you young men with a sword along with the captured horses. I caused the stench of your camp to fill your nostrils, yet you did not return to me. Do you see a repeated theme here? I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a burning stick snatched from a fire, yet you did not return to me. What was his conclusion? Israel, prepare to meet your God. What am I saying? I'm saying that I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, and no one can say for sure what is going on right now. Unless we had additional prophecy. I mean, we see this a lot. We, we see people say, well, this could represent this future person or that future event. Yeah, it could. That, that's mere speculation. But unless we have further revelation telling us that, we, we, we can only approach this, uh, yeah, I guess, humbly and conservatively. Humbly and conservatively, we can say that it is historically God's way of getting his people's attention. When he brings forces that are external to them, that are outside them, that are beyond their control, that uses that that, that, will, that these forces will use fear, um, either falsely or rightly, something we should be afraid of, in a sense, that that, that, that they are bent on domination and conquest, And that, in so doing, they are, in fact, the most important part, being used as tools, as instruments of God to fulfill his purposes. And our task is not to wallow in angst, 
our task is not to fear. Our, our task uh, is to, in fact, I, I think, as uh, God said to the prophet Amos, return to him. I, th- I think that what God is doing uh, through all of this, using this external, all the many external forces that we are facing that are bearing upon the church right now, for us to return to him, to, to confess our idolatry, to confess our sin, to confess how long we have cohabited comfortably with this culture, for how we have um, neglected um, the house of God. I'm not talking about the buildings. Um, for our own, to enjoy our own consumption. Not sure what I mean by that, but maybe you do. Uh, we, God is saying, I think, to the church in America, and He's been saying it to the to the church in in Iran, and He's He's, he's using forces in North Korea. Listen, guys, because the, the United States' demise is no reason for us to to to, to to, to you know, run up to the top of the you know Saigon Hotel, you know, and, and wait for wait for wait for God to airless soccer. By the way, we need to pray for Afghanistan. Pray for the women and children in Afghanistan, and for the believers. They're believers in Afghanistan and what they face now. Man, if, if there was ever anybody who, who could maybe rightly say, uh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, Jesus has got to be around the corner, it would be a believer in Afghanistan right now. There is a sense in which we will never answer the question, why, why God do you allow this? Why don't you intervene? But one of the things I think he does answer, I think that the, the, the first chapter of Habakkuk shows us, God often and frequently uses external forces to come and to judge his people and to use this as a as a as a wake-up call for them to return to Him. And those true believers, those the true church, will return to Him in repentance, in humility, in confession. God, what are you doing in this world? And God would say to us, you ain't seen nothing yet. And when it comes, all we are to do is to return to Him, to seek Him, to repent and to humble ourselves before him. Let's pray.